morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we are in our summer programming, so we're going to be rebroadcasting some of our more celebrated programs. They're all celebrated. They're all fabulous. However, um, yeah, we're going to be uh, rebroadcasting some that maybe you might not have listened to in a while. So today, uh, because Incobra is having its conference this weekend, Incobra is the premier uh, reparations organization, they're having a conference, an online conference again, this Friday through Sunday, June 25th through 27th. And we had an interview with um, the male co-chair of Incobra, Nana Kwesi Ajimoke uh, Ife Tayo. Um, and so this year is the 32nd um, Incobra virtual conference, and that was in July last year, uh, was the, was the uh, 31st. And this year is going to be in June. Uh, it's about a month earlier than the previous year. So I just wanted to give you a heads up about um, this current um, conference, and it's this weekend. And uh, and then Delphio Marcellus um, talks to us about a new nonprofit that he uh, launched. It's called Keep uh, New Orleans um, Music Alive, Keep Nola Music Alive. And um, it uh, was created to help New Orleans music culture thrive during the uncertain times of, gosh, when we were really like in the throes of the pandemic. We're still in the pandemic, but that was last year. And he also um, had his birthday party. Um, I think he made 55 last year. So he had a double nickel birthday bash um, last year as well. So this year in August, he's going to turn um, 56. <laughs> so anyway, it's a really, really good program, if I do say so myself. So sit back, enjoy, and um, yeah, register for uh, Incobra's 32nd annual uh, conference, national conference. There's a lot to talk about, a whole lot to talk about. All righty, you take good care, and again, thanks so much for tuning in for Wanda's Picks. Bala su Hey. 
Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer for Eshu Legba. Uh, a deity to let us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And we are really excited to have joining us in the studio this morning for our first conversation, um, the uh, the male co-chair of Encobra, or the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, uh, Nana Kwesi Jamoke Ifetayo, to talk to us about the 31st annual Encobra conference, which is virtual this year, uh, tomorrow, July 30th through Saturday, August 1st. Good morning. Greetings. Happy New Day. Happy New Day to you, too. So, wow, how exciting, 31 years. I'm going to read your bio, and and then we will just jump right into the conversation of what is Encobra, you know, like reparations. What are they? Uh, I'm sure All people right. have heard the words, but I don't know if they sort of know what it means in relationship to people of African descent. Um, you are currently serving as the Southeast Region Representative of Encobra, the premier national reparations organization in the United States. In addition, you serve as the male co-chair of the Atlanta chapter of Encobra and the facilitator of the Ashe Committee of Encobra, and you are the recent past national male co-chair of Encobra, um, so which means you must have been in this this office for quite a few times, you know, for quite a few years. How many is it in total? In the position of the national male co-chair? Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah, I was just in that position for two years. Okay, okay. And you're mm-hmm. on your, your next term, now, your second term right now? Well, in terms of the position that I now hold, Southeast Regional Representative, yeah, I'm in my second term of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Baba uh, Jamoke, you are a community activist, lecturer, thought leader, visionary father, spirit dancer, consultant, and entrepreneur. Um, you've worked with various organizations, including but not limited to ACORN, Trans Africa, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Federation of Southern Cooperatives, Mississippi Action for Community Education, Nation of Islam, and the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Uh, Baba Jamoke serves on the Reparations Committee of the Movement for Black Lives and on the Education Committee of the National Reparations Summit. With over 20 years' experience within COBRA and a lifetime of experience as a community activist, uh, you've spoken at numerous schools, universities, conferences, and churches. Um, Baba Jamoke has written articles and done many interviews on the reparations movement. In addition to hosting an annual six-hour radio program on reparations, uh, Baba Jamoke also co-hosts a bi-weekly radio show and podcast on the Black Talk Radio Network called Conversation Reparations. When can people listen to that live? Sure. The live show is on the first and third Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So the first and third Monday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it's a one-hour show. Oh, so that's perfect because um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, this coming Monday, right, um, the third, will be mm-hmm. a show? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 
did you time it that way, like on purpose, to have the conference and then your show like that? So you know people can <laughs> Not <call> exactly. But, <laughs> 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 so yeah, we'll probably be, that show will probably be kind of, a, you know, some highlights and wrap-up from the convention, yes. Oh, that's going to be really awesome. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> you uh, you received your, your bachelor's degree from the University of uh, the South in, um, is it Sewanee? Tennessee? Yes. yes. With a double major in economics and third world studies. Ah, well, this is, I, I love your, I love bios. It's like a journey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and I um, actually looked up um, your um, your work with the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And, okay. uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about, because you look at reparations from a spiritual perspective. Like, you know, it's it's what people of African descent need, you know, it's not just economics, it's about who we are as as spirits beings, you know, having a human experience all these years, you know, uh, you know, as descendants of ancestors that suffered tremendously. So I want you to talk a little bit about the reconciliation and also, you know, sort of how you define reparations. Oh, sure. That's a great question. Um, first of all, let me just thank you for the um, the opening of your show. I was, um, and it's all tied together, I was raised up in the Yoruba culture. My mother got involved in the Ifa tradition. And so, you know, hearing the song through Alekba, um, and I'm actually familiar with the group Zion Trinity, and hearing that oh, song nice. was, um, <laughs> was very good and grounding for me because it is important when we do this work that we understand the spiritual, what I like to say spiritual ashe or the spiritual power that we have. And it's interesting you were saying you did some research on me because I also did a little research on you and, and with your website and saw that you do a lot of work with the ancestors in the Ma'afa, the annual Ma'afa tributes that you organize out there in Oakland. Um, so, yeah, so, and it's all, like I said, it's all connected because, um, I think more importantly than the Fellowship of Reconciliation, I think the best way to discuss it would be the Ashe Committee. So in COBRA, mm-hmm. it's called Nine Commissions, and each commission is one of the different ways of organizing towards reparations. So, for example, there's a legislative commission, and it organizes through legislation at the federal level as well as at the state and local level. And we have uh, Information and Media Commission, which is how we get the word out about reparations through, well, now primarily through social media, but also through producing journals and newsletters and, and things like that, radio like I'm doing now. There's a youth commission, and we know that it's important to involve our young people in this movement. There's an economic development commission. But the economic development commission primarily looks at what, how do we prepare ourselves um, economically to receive reparations, whether that's setting up trust, whether that's um, you know, creating a uh, body of people who, a community body of people that could determine how the money is distributed in the community and different things like that. There's, of course, a legal strategies commission and there's an international commission which looks at how we, you know, work with, uh, with in the international arena in the United Nations and in the world arena in terms of uh, putting pressure on the United States for reparations. So, so what I, as I as I, as I mentioned, with your background from my mother, and actually I'd like to recognize my father as well. My father is a well-known um, civil rights activist and continued, well, he started out as a student activist, actually, 
but continued in, in his work in the civil rights movement, um, worked with Martin Luther King and his, his brother um, in Louisville, Kentucky, and continued to do um, work around voter education, voter empowerment, and many other things, and still continues to be active today. Um, so I always considered myself this merger between my, my mother and my father, my mother introducing me more to African culture and spirituality and, and tradition, and my father um, being the uh, foundation for my uh, drive for wanting to look at social justice and how do we change public policy and how do we make a difference in the world. And so when I looked at in Cobras um, those different missions, and I said, well, how would someone from an African traditional perspective or someone looking through the lens of African culture and African spirituality go about reparations? I said, well, we wouldn't go through the court system. We wouldn't go through legislation because, again, that's their construct. Well, what we would do is we would go to, to our spirit guides and our shrines, and we would ask what are the things that we need to do to advance reparations. And so I began that journey some years ago, and that, like I said, culminated in creating something called the Ashe Committee, which I say is to um, use spiritual warfare to tap into our spirituality and our culture and our tradition to advance reparations, as well as to bring in the faith community, which we know has always been a powerful part of our movement, whether we talk about the Christian faith or even um, you mentioned in my bio, my work with the Nation of Islam, as well as the work with the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is a faith-based coalition of primarily um, European-American um, different faith traditions um, that have come together to do work around peace and social justice and, and around the issue of racism. They have now evolved to focusing on reparations. So they engaged me in doing several um, webinars around the spirituality um, of reparations. And so, and then we continue to work around uh, how do we organize white um, faith-based groups to support the reparations movement more because many of them have already passed resolutions saying that they supported H.R. 40 and they supported reparations. But in terms of the actual uh, work or whatever we, that they were actually doing to really advance it besides passing resolutions or having study circles in their churches, they really wasn't doing that much. So we decided to figure out how we could engage them even more. That's kind of a long answer to your question. but So, yeah, so for me, uh, i just come back to conclude is that, yes, it's, it's very important that we look at um, our faith tradition and how we um, tap into that as to moving us forward in terms of realizing reparations. And, and ultimately, reparations, when we talk about full repair, it also includes going back to we were in before we were damaged, before the crime happened, before the injury happened. A lot of times people talk about current disparities, particularly economic disparities. But um, as a reparation, I'm also concerned with the loss of our language, the loss of our culture, the loss of our traditions, our rights of passages, our, you know, the, our own ways of self-governance and all of that is, is um, part of the reparations repair as well. Wow, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, when I when I saw when I looked at your bio and I saw that um, that you were um, that you worked with the uh, you know Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I mean, you know, <clears throat> sort of the breadth of of the organizations that that you worked with. It's now it's it's a little clearer, you know, now that you tell us, you know, how you know you had that real you know great balance, you know, in your life, you know, through your parents, right, your mom and your dad. Um, 
and uh, and I was just wondering, do you want to call the names of your of your parents? Yeah, well, my, yeah, well, my father, he's still with us. His name is Holbert, um, Holbert James Senior, and um, and my mother, um, she she has transitioned now, but I, I called her Ye Ye, which is Yoruba for mother. Uh, mm-hmm. She also she transformed her name, evolved her name to Olaya Odufunke. Also, she her birth name was Gloria Simmons, and so yes, Ashe for um, my Ye Ye. And, uh, and, and yeah, thank you for allowing me to do that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I say to your mom, and you know, and big ups to your dad. Wow, that they're mm-hmm. really proud of you, sort of carrying forth the tradition, you know, and the values that you know they they embodied. Because um, that, that's not always the case. You know, that was a choice that you made. Um, mm-hmm. And that's great for our community. Because uh, it looks like you've you know been you've been working working working. So maybe we'll start with um, you know, telling us about Encobra, um, its founding, and about this conference and the themes, and then we'll and then we'll circle back. <laughs> sure. So Encobra was formed in 19 uh, officially incorporated in 1988. Um, the what was going on at that time was that. The Japanese redress bill was in Congress and and was and was being signed and, and became a law that the Japanese received reparations and so um, many several African um, American activists and I may use the term African American or New African interchangeably um, began to come together and say well wait a minute they given Japanese reparations what about our reparations that that has never happened. And so um, Brother Mario Bedelli, who's now an ancestor, I say, along with another elder, another ancestor now, Queen Mother Dorothy Benton Lewis, who have been longtime champions for reparations, um, you know, began to call a group of people together to say, let's, let's um, look at reparations or reigniting a, a reparations movement for us since we see that they're giving reparations to the Japanese at this time. Um, at that time, there were... Um, several organizations and formations that talked about reparations or had reparations as one of their issues, but it was felt that there was no one single group um, or organization that was primarily and solely focused on reparations. And so ENCOBRA came into existence after several meetings uh, as the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. And again, coalition important because, like I said, it was organizations as well as individuals that came together to bring it forward. And from that point on, um, shortly after that, uh, around that same time, another activist um, we call Reparations Ray Jenkins, who had been a a longtime activist in Detroit, was um, pushing, uh, had been um, whispering in John Conyers, Congressman John Conyers' ear about putting forward a reparations bill. And again, Conyers seeing Cobra coming into existence, seeing the Japanese get reparations, was inspired to put forward a reparations bill, which is now known as H.R. 40. And he put that, introduced that bill in, in um, 1989. Um, before he introduced it, he let Cobra activists look over it and get our, our endorsement of it. And we've been like the lobbying group um, that have been pushing it ever since then. And we've done a lot of other things that, you know, Cobra could be a whole show, but 
So, yeah, that's um, kind of the history of Encobra and how it came into existence. And then in terms of our convention, um, we began started having conventions, I believe, in 1990. And every year since then, we, we continue to have the convention. Really excited and real proud about our conventions, and, and this one in particular. Um, we decided that uh, it was very important as we look around the room of some of our COBRA meetings that the board of directors were getting more and more senior. And we said, well, you know, we know this is a multi-generational fight, and we need to definitely uh, do a better job at engaging young people. And even Minister Farrakhan, who was our keynote speaker at our convention last year, even also challenged us, or maybe could even say slightly admonished us, that he didn't see enough young people around us in the COBRA. And so, you know, we decided to make a strong push this year to engage young people. And so we created a, a sort of theme was uh, reparations today, what youth them say. And we've added uh, two um, youth tracks to the convention this year, which we haven't done in a long time, as well as we just, even within the adult um, portion of the convention, we also put youth to sit on those panels as well. Um, what Encobra does, in my opinion, is that we bring the best minds and the cutting-edge information in terms of what's going on in the reparations movement. So to that end, we are the first panel on Saturday, August the 1st, um, will be a, a panel after we do the opening ceremony. And that's going to be even powerful because during the opening ceremony, we're going to link up with reparations activists in London. Uh, we have a rapport over the years with Esther Stanford, who's one of the leading reparations activists really in, in the world, but definitely in London, England. And um, every year on August 1st, they, they have a, a, a major reparations march and rally. And so we are going to um, conference call them in to our convention as well. This year they're calling it um, Reparations Rebellion. They're going to occupy uh, some streets in, 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 in London. And so we're going to link with them. And so, and, and so the first panel is going to be around COVID-19 and reparations. And we have two scientists in our community, scientists slash activists, elders, um, talking about something called transgenerational epigenetics and how we can prove through DNA and through science now that we actually wear the scars, as Cam said. Uh, we wear the scars of uh, the enslavement period and Jim Crow and lynching and the continued uh, um, trauma that happens to people after descent, but we wear that in our DNA. Um, you know, we're able to connect the dots and say, well, people say people of African descent have um, – been dying at a disproportionate rate due to COVID-19, and then the next thing is said is, well, they're dying at a disproportionate rate because they have a higher um, uh, pre-existing conditions that cause that, like whether that's diabetes or uh, other types of challenges. But then the next question is, why do we have a higher percentage of those types of pre-existing conditions? And that goes back to the trauma and goes back to um, the problems with the food that we ate and not getting a proper diet in, in, during that period, and all of that has impacted us even still today. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, we, we want to also continue to not just explore the science of it, but also the economics of it. We know that people of African descent 
you know, a challenge in terms of having health care and health insurance. And, uh, you know, when we get sick, we, we wait till the, the, the disease progresses sometimes too far before we actually go to the hospital just because we know we don't have the funds or some of us don't have the funds and things like that. And so there's a whole economic question around why we also um, – position where we are as it relates to COVID-19. And then we're going to kind of seal that up, like I said, with a young person who's really going to look at how all of, you know, more of the emotional aspect of how this impacts us as a people. I'm Dr. Kyra Shahid. And so, um, so, yeah, so that's the first panel. The second panel, which is really the, I think that will be really the highlight of the convention, which is we we have the, the leaders, the actual Congress people, state representatives, uh, um, city council people and aldermen that actually have passed reparations um, bills or for reparations commissions locally in their city and their state. Well, we know we haven't passed it at the federal level, but Sheila Jackson Lee, who who picked it up from Kanye, who I mentioned earlier, um, you know, this is the first time. Usually every year we get around 30 to 40 co-sponsors. This year we're up to 140, and our goal is to get to 150. And even as we speak, we may even be closer. We may have even picked up some more, but it's been a strong momentum to get um, 150 um, co-sponsors. And then once we do that, Sheila Jackson Lee promises that she'll bring it to the floor of Congress for 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 a debate. Um, so we also have Senator Cory Booker, on, who will be presenting or giving us a video, and he uh, has introduced a Senate version. This is the first time in history since Reconstruction there's been a uh, bill in the House and in the Senate um, for reparations. Um, and then um, Evanston, Illinois, City Councilwoman uh, Robin Simmons, who would pass the bill to get a reparations commission set up in Evanston, which is a suburb of Chicago. So we have all those people in uh, in, 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 in and, you know, our legislative commission has been doing great work. Our national mail co-chair, Cam Howard, has been doing great work in the Chicago area um, with reparations. They have a reparations committee that was set up in the city of Chicago. He'll be speaking about that. The city council, the city aldermen in Chicago will be speaking about that. It's going to be just incredible. Like I said, at the state level, we have Charles Barron, who has introduced a bill in the state of New York. We have um, Christa, uh, Christopher Rabb, who's introduced a bill in the state of Pennsylvania. Again, we're bringing to the public people who are actually advancing reparations at their city, state, and at the federal level. And we'll be bringing the actual people to our convention so you can hear directly from them, as well as those who, like ourselves and Cobra, who are strategizing with them and how to bring this thing forward and, and, and have these victories that we're having that we're seeing around the country. Um, and then the last panel, going back to our theme, importance of young people, we're having intergenerational dialogue. So we have elders from 83 down to 14 and everything in the middle to kind of discuss the importance of passing on, I like to say not necessarily the baton, but passing on the flame of the baton to the next generation and, and what the next generation um, would like for the elders and system in terms of this movement and what the elders would like to see the young people do to assist us in this movement. So that'll be the closing conversation of our convention. Wow. That's, it's going to be really full. And what I really like about, you know, the whole idea of figuring out different kinds of ways that we could be together um, since we can't gather physically is that this is really opened up so that we can really be together um, in a way that, mm. you know, um, 
you know, Marcus Garvey, you know, I'm from Marcus Garvey might have envisioned, you know, thinking about those big conventions that, you know, that the UNIA would host, right, you know, in the diaspora. And, I mean, he would have probably loved Zoom, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and YouTube and, <laughs> and Facebook yeah. Live. <laughs> uh, yeah, imagine those tools. If Garvey had those tools, he was able to amass millions of people without any of that. Imagine how much more effective mm-hmm. it could have been with those tools. Um, right. You know, it's always interesting to me. And I think we're at the 100th anniversary of that convention um, this year that he held in New York with um, like 25,000 people that met for a whole month. I mean, I don't think, I mean, nobody's ever done anything like that before since that I'm aware of in our history. Um, or even period. They, they met for the whole month of August. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's right, incredible. Yeah. It was just incredible. And that was when, yeah, he was, he was, I say, just like Garvey. Yeah, definitely, I'm mm-hmm. a race woman. And, uh, and, and that was when he was, um, you know, he was nominated as the provisional, um, you know, president of the United States of Africa, right? <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, this is going to be. Uh, monumental, you know, and all of these things that are happening, you know, um, in the world at the time of this uh, of this conference and and the the timing of it. Like, is it always is it always like sort of include you know Black August, <laughs> like you know starts in July and then it it you know definitely dips into August because you mentioned um, <laughs> Republic of New Africa, so. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering sort yeah, of like, well, and then, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, this is actually the first year that we've had these dates. Our conventions have um, in, always been in June for many years, oh. the third weekend in June, um, mm-hmm. and then because of Juneteenth, we switched it to the fourth weekend in June. But this is the first time that we've had a convention outside of June, and, and normally they would have been the fourth weekend in June. And again, with this um, COVID-19 and everything, we had to make it virtual. We also made a decision to give ourselves a little bit more time to put this convention together. As again, some of the elders and everyone, we were adjusting to, to you know, doing the whole convention online. So we rescheduled it to to this date. And actually, it was interesting because at first we didn't. I wasn't even at first. I don't know. It's divine order, right? Here, that's what speaking thinking about it, you know, starting, that it, you know, ending on, on August 1st, coming into what we know as Black August, as, as well as Emancipation Day, which is the reason why, um, you know, London, as I mentioned, the London activists do something every year, have been doing for the last seven, eight years now, the, the August 1st, which is actually Emancipation Day when the British, quote-unquote, you know, released the enslaved Africans on, on August 1st. And so, um, yeah, so, yeah, that just all beautifully, divinely came together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then, you know, our, our um, you know, our, our beloved uh, representative, um, you know, John Robert Lewis, you know, lying in state, you know, after, um, you know, sort of making that, you know, sort of historic circuit, and he's still moving. But right now, I think he's still in Washington. Um, his body is still in Washington. You know, his soul is free, of course. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, 
the uh, the period of time we're in. You mentioned COVID nineteen. Um, you know, we also look at you know major uprisings around. We're not taking it anymore as uh, <laughs> as as uh, you know um, uh, our uh, elder Ia uh, Fannie Lou Hamer would say, right? And and then we we think about also this whole thing around elections. Like this is a big year, and um, and then last year was the 400th anniversary of you know the first Africans um, being commodified. You know when they came into what is now Hampton, you know, at Old Fort Comfort. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's um, one of you could, like, sort of situate it for us. And then I was also thinking, um, and I, because I, I know that a lot of states have, um, you know, um, different kinds of legislation on their books that needs to be removed around um, rights for people of African descent. And, um and there's something on the bills. I don't know if it's reparations or not here in California. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk talk about that a little bit. Um, but anyway, that you can sort of make your way through all of these comments that I just gave you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned John Lewis. I think what I wanted to do was to, to use him as, a, as maybe a segue to just kind of lift up um, some things in our movement and things at this time, you know, um, I'm not sure John Lewis wasn't necessarily a a strong advocate in terms of say pushing for reparations. However, every year he would always sign on as a co-signer. Like he was no hesitation. He would always sign on every year since 1989 to be a co-sponsor of HR 40. So we know that he supported it to that degree. Um, we also want to acknowledge who just recently transitioned with Reverend C. T. Vivian, and um, and actually spent a little bit more time working with him around the work I did with NCLC and was able to invite him, for example, to speak at a convention that we organized at Georgia State University with the National Black Law Students Association. He spoke about reparations. And then when um, Dr. Ray Winbush's book came out, um, Should America Pay?, he was also on a panel, um, Dr. Ray Winbush and, and Dr. Jewel Crawford here in Atlanta, um, supporting reparations. So we know that he was a supporter of reparations. And I think we should also not forget that another great icon transitioned this year as well, which was Dr. Joseph Lowry. And um, yes. and I mean, I spent some time working around him as well. And I, um, Joe Lowry, was all, to me, was always known, one thing he was known for was his colorful uh, expression. And I remember in the, in the early 1990s, there was um, – there was a congressperson, a European-American congressperson, I believe his name was Hall, was his last name, who was putting forward the idea of America just doing an apology for, you know, for slavery and racism in America, right? And, you know, this got a lot of buzz. And, 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 and I remember that um, Joseph Lowry said that um, he said he can, uh, America, uh, I'm trying to get as close as how he said he said America can send my apology on the back of the deed to my 40 acres by way of my mule, <laughs> which, which was his, his colorful way of saying we don't want just an apology, <laughs> we want reparations, right? Mm-hmm. And and then also, you know, and if you even go further back, you know, I I, I did a whole show on one of my podcasts um, 
around Martin Luther King support for reparations. And, and a lot of people talk about the bounce check, but I have maybe about 15, 20 references where he talked about reparations um, in his sermons and his speeches and his writings and his interviews. Uh, he was clearly a supporter of reparations. And even then we flip back and then come back forward. Just recently heard Reverend Al Sharpton, you know, um, on the radio recently talking about the march that he's organizing August 28th in, you know, in, in, in um, commemoration of the, the march on Washington. And he said, you know, uh, this, this um, last week that, you know, that the three focal points of the, uh, his gathering is going to be uh, voting rights, police reform, and HR 40 reparations. So um, I say all I have to say is that the civil rights movement has always been grounded and have supported reparations. And, and even as we see these icons transitioning, um, it's important to, for people to know that they supported the reparations movement. So you're continuing in that vein, you know, calling yourselves Black Lives Matter or Movement for Black Lives or whatever. You know, we're really encouraging people to consider uh, particularly at this time with people with the protesting in the street and people saying, you know, I mean, police terror and murder is really just the tip of the spear. It's how they address the problems of systemic racism because they haven't, because they don't have a way of, because they haven't chosen to really address it properly. So they, they address it with, with force, with, with brute force, with brutality, with murder. And so, um, that's why it's so important at this time for us not to um, limit this conversation to just um, police brutality and police murder uh, and even defunding the police, and, 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 but really to uh, understand the importance of how reparations can um, be used as a tool to comprehensively address that as well as the other disparities in our communities, health, education, and even, like I said, even connecting back to our African cultural traditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I um I had a question about the you know the uh, Encobra being um, a national or international organization with regards to reparations because our people are throughout the Western world, right, um, yes. and elsewhere, and and so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the organizing around. Uh, reparations when um, our people are are not necessarily in the United States, and and you know the connection with uh, Emancipation Day, you know being um, celebrated, you know in London, and and tying that in. Just wonder if you could sort of maybe pull together the different um, international arms of this move for reparations for our people who are affected uh-huh. by. Enslavement. Yeah, that's a great question. As I mentioned before, we have a um, one of the commissions of Encobra is our International Affairs Commission, and that's its um, one of its main purposes is to is to connect with uh, reparations movement um, in the diaspora in the Caribbean, Canada, um, Central South America, Africa, and and Europe, and so. That's definitely um, the work of Encobra. We see ourselves working in the coalition. Uh, we've made our focus the United States. However, we do work in coalition and support other movements. 
I think, though, in terms of talking about the international piece, the one thing that has to be addressed would be the World Conference Against Racism, which was held in Durban in 2001 and, uh, in COBRA, along with a, a group called the December 12th Movement, along with a, another group called the National Black United Front, um, came together and, and formed something called the Durban 400. And the idea was that whenever they have these big United Nations gatherings, there's always a document that comes out. And that document is like supposed to be like the guiding principles of how nations are supposed to operate from that point forward around that particular issue. So um, some of the lawyers and, and international activists knew that if we could get slavery declared a crime against humanity, uh, in terms of international law, what that means is that there's no statute of limitations. So nations can no longer say, well, that happened a long time ago once something was declared a crime against humanity. But it was a big organizing effort to organize activists in the Caribbean, uh, again, being led by African-American activists in the United States, but to, to, to organize um, people who are working on reparations uh, who are going to be attending this international convention in, in South Africa um, to make them aware that this was the goal to get slavery declared a crime against humanity in that in that document. Pre meetings actually in the you know in the, in the different regions, Central South America, Africa, Europe, Asia. And so at those pre meetings again that's what was said. And so when the convention happened in Durban, South Africa, that that was actually put into the document that slavery was declared a crime against humanity. As well as um, and, and as well as putting forward the idea that reparations is a, is a solution to that. And so from out of that convention, um, there was an international convention, excuse me, there was a, a national, uh, there was a group called the Global African Congress that came together after that to kind of keep the momentum going um, from the, the Durban Convention. And so, you know, for many of us, We've just been focusing on reparations in our local na nations, or those of us even in the United States. We didn't even know that there was a, a whole reparations movement going on in, in Colombia and Bolivia and, and, and Nicaragua and all of these places, you know. Um, and so um, that has, um, and so that, you know, and Cobra took leadership with that um, in the North America region. I mentioned to you Queen Mother Dorothy Benton Lewis earlier. Um, she was um, the, the leader of the, um, the North American part of the Global African Congress, and we continue to stay engaged with that as in COBRA. Uh, more recently, you had CARICOM to um, come forward, and, and all of the Caribbean nations agreed that they're going to focus on reparations. I think that was in 2013, and they've continued that push in COBRA. We've been supportive of um, We were actually inspired by that, and and, you know, a group was created here in the United States called the National African American Reparations Commission, um, modeled after the Caribbean uh, Reparations Commission. So, yeah, we definitely um, work in solidarity with reparations movements. We've had chapters of INCOBRA in Ghana, and we've had chapters of INCOBRA in uh, Haiti. And, and, again, like I said, we have a strong uh, collaboration with Sister Esther Stanford and um, in London, and so yes, um, and Cobra definitely supports um, the Pan-African or reparations movement throughout um, Africa and the diaspora. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about um, 
you know, when um, Hajj Malik al-Shabazz, um, you know, was, um, and I think, um, I think Dr. King was doing something similar, you know, sort of taking uh, the case for, uh, you know, racial discrimination and structural racism to the UN, um, you know, and to, um, I guess, um, I'm not sure exactly, to, um, uh, to have the United States, you know, sort of rectify, you know, these, these structural inequities, and, mm-hmm. and then they were both killed. And, um, and then I remember a document um, called We Cry Genocide. Um, we Charge Genocide. Mm-hmm. We Charge Genocide, yeah. Mm-hmm. We Charge Genocide, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So yeah, there's yeah. been a there's been a tradition of of, of bringing uh, reparations and, and the issue of um, human rights violations uh, that we have experienced in the United States to the United Nations. Uh, but we charge genocide is probably the first um, noted example that we're familiar with. And after we charge genocide, Queen Mother Moore, who is one of the foundational. Uh, Persons in the reparations movement, also an ancestor. Now I say she, along with uh, uh, Dara Bubakari, they they brought forward a petition to the United Nations um, demanding reparations. And that was followed up by um, a few years later by Malcolm X uh, bringing forward a demand for uh, human rights violations against United States and reparations. So yeah, there mm-hmm. has been a solid um, tradition. Um, that's been picked up by, I mentioned earlier, organization called the December 12th Movement. It's also right. been followed up by um, the Lost Foundation of Islam. Um, they, they've they done a lot of work at the United Nations level in terms of advancing reparations and bringing our case before the um, in, in international and United Nations arena. So, yeah, that's been an ongoing tradition of, of um, uh, bringing to the United Nations our uh, human rights uh, concerns. Even there was a case recently that um, another victory that we all talk about, which was a reparations victory in Chicago. And I always say Chicago is like, I say, the uh, heartbeat of the reparation movement or, or the pace setters, pace setters in our reparation movement. But there was a, uh, there was a, uh, a European-American um, person that was, um, I don't remember his exact position, but he worked within the police department, and, and he for uh, Burge, I think his name is. Anyway, he worked for a period of time, and during that period of time, he was known for leading torture against um, black men to get confessions out of them. And so there was an actual lawsuit um, put forward, and actually a bill put forward, actually a lawsuit, a bill that was put forward, for reparations for those men who had been um, violated by him as well as their families. And, um, yeah, so, but one of the things that they did, and I'll try to yeah, make sure I didn't lose my thought, one of the things that they did during that time, they actually also went to um, some of the leaders, some young leaders, they also went to the United Nations to um, present this um, before the United Nations that they were working locally in Chicago around these human rights violations that had happened to these um, prisoners. So, yeah, there's always, um, it's very important that we um, connect this movement internationally. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was um, 
was was it the uh, Mal- Malcolm X Grassroots um, is also um, central to this uh, movement as well, right? Uh, yes. Um, at that time when the club was formed, one of the founding members was um, the New African People's Organization, which is the, uh, the cadre arm of the uh, I say the Malcolm X, yeah of the Malcolm X Grassroots movement. Yeah, so they have um, consistently been um, supportive of, of reparations and the reparations movement. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, well, we have like 15 more minutes, and I want to make sure that um, we get a chance to talk about anything else that um, is real central to people understanding the importance of this movement. And um, I don't just want to sort of think, talk a little bit about um, personhood and uh, and how people of African descent, we have to keep on uh, sort of um, proving, you know, to um, to these various uh, political and uh, and government structures that, that we are a people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because when you look at how people of African descent and I'm talking, you know, here in America specifically, are treated, you know, we think about, you know, the horrific documentation of what happened to, um, you know, Ahmed Arbery before, you know, George Floyd, uh, Floyd and then Breonna Taylor. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know we, have, uh, we have the stolen legacy, um, you know, sort of honoring those people that have uh, lost their lives to the state, and that's October 22nd. Um, every year, you know, you, people might mm-hmm. see public displays of the names <laughs> of so many people killed by the state. I mean, it's not to say that, you know, mm-hmm. black people don't die in other ways, but, you know, the state, you know, we're paying for these people to have a job, and they're killing us. Um, just the whole idea, and then you think about all of our people that are incarcerated, locked up in cages. Some of them are children mm-hmm. still, you mm-hmm. know, like little bitty children. and And then people are dying now because of the overcrowding and you can't distance if you're in a cell so people are just dying and their bodies are being sort of you know piled up and there's like no respect you know for this life that's Mm -hmm. lost you know just the whole idea of that um you know sort of like well i'm just wondering like okay the reparation will that legislate our humanity <laughs> is that is that like a, a byproduct of of this? Well, well, let me let me answer it this way. I, you know, and I thank you for for, for setting that up. Um, one of the things that's very important um, to me, and one of the things that we with Encoba really wanting to get out to people around um, understanding reparations is the United Nations definition of reparations and the five forms of reparations. And before I get to that, I just want to also. When I when I talk about reparations, we talk about reparations in terms of the process of healing or repair for a crime or injury that's been done to a people, and that can come from governments, corporations, institutions, and families slash individuals. So, so that's the basic de- definition of reparations. Now, when I joined in Cobra, I was told that you know that people basically have three roads towards reparations. So one road is repatriation. Those who feel like they just want to go back to Africa and that's the best way to make themselves whole again, 
but not just to get on a plane and go back to Africa. Reparations would also, you know, give those people who want to repatriate resources so they could go back to Africa and build communities and schools and hospitals and sanitation systems and all the things they need to, to build to reconstruct society um, in, in Africa. The second road would be those who feel like we should have our own sovereign nation state. And, and you know, we mentioned, mentioned Republic of New Africa, um, that the idea that those, that's a reparations demand in and of itself, just like Israel, there's a, there's a demand that within the United States we could carve out our own nation state. Uh, and, and then the reparations would be paid to the government structure of that nation state. And then that government structure would then disseminate the reparations to the citizens of the nation state. And then the third option is continued assimilation to the United States um, with reforms and other, uh, other uh, reparations remedies. So, um, and then when I used to ask my elders when I first got into the COBRA, what is it that, what is it that we want for reparations? What is the COBRA, you know, put forward for reparations? And the response I would get was that we didn't want to determine it as in COBRA, but we want the people to determine it. And I, and I, and I, for a long time, that was an acceptable answer for me. But then I was like, well, we need to figure out a way, a process to engage the people in what reparations would specifically look like. Let me put a pin in that for now. So now let me move to the five forms of reparations, um, which is just to me incredibly are important that people get this, that they don't remember anything else about this interview, the five forms of reparations from the United Nations. So the five forms of reparations from the United Nations, number one we talk about is cessation and non-repetition. That means that the crime, which is still happening today, even as we have this conversation against people of African descent, has to end. Right? It has to end. And and the thing that you were talking about, the the, the, the the prisons and the people in prison and the children in prison and people dying in prison and all of that, that has to end, and many other things as well, has to end, and we have to design the reparations in such a way that it won't perpetuate itself or reoccur again in the future. So that's, so that's you know, a lot I tell people to wrap their mind around. Um, but, again, if you're looking at option one and option two, that becomes much more viable if we have our own nation and or if you choose to go back to Africa. So the second um, form of reparation, so cessation and non-repetition. The second form of reparation, um, and there's not a particular order to this, but um, I would bring up would be rehabilitation. So rehabilitation basically deals with the psychosocial trauma that um, needs to be healed. So that's, and I mentioned that earlier around transgenerational epigenetics and things like that. So we're talking about doing a deep dive at the, the mental physical, physiological health and healing that's needed for people of African descent. Um, the third form is restitution. And so restitution deals with um, around restoring people to their legal standing or the position that they were in before the crime happened. Again, that looks more like, you know, again, sovereign nation state dealing with nationhood. Um, you know, there's a whole conversation um, in the black nationalist community. We say that you know, and others say this, argue this, that, you know, we never agreed to be citizens of the United States. So the 13th Amendment so-called freed us. That's another conversation. But then the 14th Amendment imposed um, citizenship on us. And and as prisoners of war, we should have the right to choose, again, do we want to go back to where we came from? Or do we want to have a separate territory within the United States? Or do we want to continue to integrate within the United States? 
So we feel like that was a uh, imposition that was put on us, not something that we agreed to. So restitution, again, looks at the legal standing sovereignty and how do we restore ourselves to the way we were. We had our own forms of self-governance, our own nation states, our own empires, our own ways of, of addressing um, the, uh, say, when someone, I say, don't commit a crime, then that's, again, a European concept. But when someone, I say, breaks the trust in the community, how is that handled, counsel, and different things. So all of that would have to be looked at, restitution. Um, that was on three. Mm -hmm. So compensation. Yeah. I don't. Um, I usually don't dwell on compensation a lot, but, you know, I think it, we can't not leave that out because compensation is important. We live in a world that's based on money at this time. I mean, a lot of the things that we're talking about, changes and reforms and, 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 and you know, like one of the points I think that really um, uh, succinct that, that Brother um, Bob Johnson, if you name, he said, you know, if you look at Michael Gardner, uh, excuse me, I keep always do that, mix them up, Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, and George Floyd, mm -hmm. and he said they all were basically killed for less than $40 because, you know, supposedly George Floyd, right, and a $20 counterfeit, uh, uh, Eric Gardner selling some Lucy's and, 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 and supposedly um, Michael Brown, you know, taking something out of a convenience store or whatever. But anyway, and all of those situations might have been different if they had a different level of income. But so, I don't, you know, and then, you know, people have calculated compensation in many different ways, um, you know, in terms of, the, you know, financial equity, um, you know, but there has definitely been a loss of theft from the black community. We talk about the housing fiasco that happened not long ago, and, and that was one of the greatest loss of wealth in the black community. So we know that there's a financial um, aspect to reparations in terms of healing and restoring us financially. Um, and then the last one, um, the fifth one, would be satisfaction. So satisfaction, I like to say loose, basically, is like restoring the dignity of a people. So that looks at how, um, what's the narrative of, of a people. You know, we built this country, but then we're considered lazy. You know, when, you know, we're talking about um, education, we're talking about museums, we're talking about days of special days of commemoration. Um, like mm -hmm. you mentioned, we mentioned Emancipation Day. We, I mentioned earlier Juneteenth, different things that would elevate the uh, story and the culture of people of African descent in this country. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, so those are the five forms of reparations. So reparations. Um, we assert within the COBRA um, what happened through the three roads of reparation and then with the five forms of United Nations definition of reparation. Um, and even, for example, with um, restitution, I wanted to go back to this prison thing, and I always qualify this and say this is not COBRA position, but this is Jumoke position. And I've been saying this for years. I'm on record of saying this a long time ago before people were talking about dismantling police departments and things like that, that, you know, we would get rid of jail. You know, I, I believe in that and abolition. That, um, but not in this, But my focus is more so in terms of as it relates to us, because in African culture and tradition, I'll leave on that close on that note. You know, we didn't have jail. You know, we we had different systems again for handling um, when someone breaks the trust in the community, but it wasn't a form of a jail. So um, these we, we, we're talking about a very forward-thinking. Um, visionary way of looking what reparations would look like and be. Mm, yeah. Wow, that was that was really enlightening. Um, I, I really uh, number five. You know, 
the the last one. <laughs> I I really like that one. Um, that is sort of like a place to start. <laughs> um, you know, restoring the dignity of our people. Like mm-hmm. you know, so like it's just it's just massive character assassination from the gate, right? Yeah. That's how they were able to mm-hmm. justify commodifying us. How do you how do you make a person into a thing? You know, yeah. without assassinating. You know, not just you know verbally, but over a time, a systemic, you know, uh, spiritual assassination to the point that you know we believe it. Now, everyone, I mean, like uh, we believe it too about ourselves. Yeah. And how do you repair that, right? I mean, like exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it's a continual, continual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's true. It's true. I mean, I think even I'll just give it to you. I mean, because I'll just say even the phrase "Black Lives Matter." is mm-hmm. in response to how black human beings, people of African descent, have been dehumanized. They continue to be dehumanized um, mm-hmm. in, in so many different ways. And, and like you said, and we have even um, internalized that ourselves in terms of the, the value of, of, of African life. And, mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted you to uh, maybe circle back and give people the information about about the uh, the conference, which starts tomorrow. Like the website, how mm-hmm. they can you know register, and 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 it's free for young people. Like you know, give all those details again. And then I wanted you to maybe close with a quote um, from maybe uh, Reverend C. T. Vivian or <laughs> Mr. Lowry or you know or your mom or. <laughs> Queen Mother Moore or whomever, you know, whatever comes to mind. <laughs> you know, leave us with something to think about, um, besides all these other great things we thought about. Give us a line. Like this would be our, our, our model for today. Uh you know, I, I need to do that. Like I need to keep a couple of good quotes handy because I hear a lot, I know a lot of public speakers have these good quotes that they never mind. But I, I, I got a I got a couple of them. We'll see what comes out at that time. But sure. Okay. So yeah. So we we encourage people to register for our convention. Um, the convention this year is only of as you as you mentioned under twenty. It's free between twenty and thirty. We call young adults. There's uh is is only fifteen dollars. For, to register, and, and if you need a scholarship, we do have some scholarships available for that. And then over 30 is $30. And you can register by going to our website at encobraonline.org. That's encobraonline.org, N-C-O-B-R-A, encobraonline.org. And go to the um, click on virtual convention, and then you can register for the convention and pay there. Um, the thir- Thursday will be the youngest is Thursday from 2 to 5 p.m., which will have a lot of um, videos and interactive engaging activities. On Friday from 6 to 9 p.m. is the young adult track um, where, where we, we want to, again, talk about reparation, but just break it down um, for their level, but also make it, you know, let them know that they can get involved in this reparation movement, you know, um, the civil rights movement and even like you say, limited, the civil rights movement, black nationalist movement. Um, though many people got engaged in it, in it as a teenager. John Lewis was a teenager. My father was a teenager. Many people got involved. Um, my mother was a teenager. Got involved at um, at, at a young age. And so you don't have to wait, you know. So we're going to actually let them know how they can actually engage 
at the federal level and at the local level, um, um, this reparations movement. And then August 1st, like I said, we start with the opening ceremony at 10.30 a.m., and then we roll through those three main panels that I um, discussed earlier. So, yeah, and... Um, is this um is this central time or eastern time? Um, to the five, six, to nine, and those, ten thirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those times again. Yes, the eastern standard time. Eastern time. Yeah. Okay. And then you probably know our um, activist elder out there, Brother Jahahara. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah he, he, he sends. Yeah, he he sends us information all the time. That's how I knew <laughs> knew about the conference. Oh, so he, yeah. sent, he sent me yeah, an email he, last yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> He's a former national um, past male co-chair of Encobra and, and, and has uh, agreed to help us um, rebuild out on the West Coast, and hopefully you will help us with that effort, too, in rebuilding um, our chapters out, um, out there on the West Coast. I, I just love the Bay Area. I, I was there uh, about two years ago, convention. As a matter of fact, and Jahara hosted me, and after I did my convention activities, and I spoke at a museum talking about in Cobra and the Republic of New Africa. And, and, oh um, yeah, I met yeah. you. You you oh, enjoyed wow. going to the gallery. That's it. I was there. Yeah, wow. it was a um it was a um it was a really wonderful convening of uh restorative justice practices. Um it was a conference yes. and I think you spoke at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, with um yes. Dr. Yes. Fanya Davis. <laughs> mhm. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, oh. and so. <laughs> oh wow, yeah, I got a lot of materials, and I think I still have some. <laughs> oh wow, small world! I didn't know this was this mm-hmm. was you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I'm still trying to think about this quote. Okay. Um, one of the um, I'm I'm gonna do two. Mama Queen Mother Moore, because her birthday was just um, Monday. One of the things oh, really? that she used to, yes, her birthday was Monday, July 27th. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that she she used to say is that there's no success without successes. And I think that's um, mm-hmm. apropos for our conventions that we're working on, making sure that the young people pick up this um, movement. So that was one thing that she said. And my father, um, I remember, he had this on his wall in his office and as, uh, as an organizer and as an activist um, in my mind often, which is if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm not sure the originator of that quote, but I'll, I'll give credit to my father because he had it on his wall. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, yeah, so those are your two quotes for today. There is no success without successes, Queen Mother Moore. And if you fail to plan, you plan to fail um, via Holbert James Sr. Okay, (laughs) cool. Wow. Well, thank you so much. It's been a really, really wonderful conversation. Um, And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, we'll have others, um, you know, as – uh, the year progresses between, you know, this conversation and the conference and, you know, and see how this this movement is going, you know. And definitely um, I'm going to start listening to your your broadcast. I'm really looking forward to Monday. That should be really cool. 
All right. Well, very good. Yeah, and um, as I said earlier, hopefully you, you'll be one, help working with us to help build a, possibly an Oakland chapter um, or rebuilding the Oakland chapter of, of Incobra or just working with Incobra out there on the West Coast. And um, and I'm interested in finding out more about the um, alpha tribute that you do because, um, as I said, one of the things that um, I've done with the ISA committee is I'm um, – identifying different ceremonies like that, you know, like there's a Ma'afa tribute in um, caravans to the ancestors in Texas. They go from mm-hmm. Houston to Galveston, and there's there's, um, um, there, there's just several types of ceremonies like that, you know, where um, people are honoring the ancestors. There's International Day of Honoring the Ancestors, which is uh, the second Saturday in June, um, mm-hmm. the ancestors of the Ma'afa, and um which is an international day for honoring the ancestors. And so there's different things like that. And I'm always been, I've been wanting to, I, I, I wear so many hats and do so many things, but I've been wanting to figure out, like, to create a, make a little website or something where people can find out about these particular ancestral um, ceremonies because I feel like it's very important that we do that work and um, to honor our ancestors on the spirit level. Um, as a matter of fact, yes, this past weekend, this past Sunday, um, my mm-hmm. God sister um, organized a ceremony. Um, it was in conjunction with the, the New Year for the Mayan calendar, also the New Year for the Kemetic calendar. Um, but it was a it, the idea of the ceremony they wanted to organize it was to to um, how do I say sort of like strengthen our 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 courage and our fight and demand for justice spiritually. And so we did a whole ceremony calling on our ancestors, and we we also called on those who had been killed by the police, and we also called on those who did murder our people, and we did a special different type of ceremony for them. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had a, a, somebody, uh, a sister that taught us a, a dance, uh, was a dance from West Africa called the Strongman Dance, Unumba. And so, oh, I know. Um, I yeah, we a, do that at our Ma'afa commemoration, Dunumba. Oh, okay. Yeah, from Mali. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I, <laughs> I did a spirit dance, a spirit warrior dance with the machete. And mm. and uh, with the, and so, yeah, so it was a, um, um, and then we had a, um, several of our elders spoke around, you know, what we need to do to strengthen ourselves and gird ourselves up spiritually at this time. Yeah, it was a powerful yeah. gathering. Right, that those things are important that we that mm-hmm. we continue to do that kind of work, um, along with the work, you know, politically and um, engaging our people, but also that we we grounded in um, our spirit work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, we've been doing um, uh, Maafa virtual town halls um, monthly every fourth Sunday, and we've had different types of. Um, of of uh, focuses um, for for the like the topic or discussion, and so last month in June we spoke about Ia Bia Bia Richards, whose centennial was July twelfth, and she did that great poem um, about um, I am a black woman, and uh, and it's, it's a longer title than that, and um, and and. And so she was born in 1920, and she passed in. Um, let's see, I think it would be. She was born in 1920. She died in 2000, and um, and she she passed the day before the um, anniversary of the 
the bombing of the 16th uh, Street Church. And so that's September 14th that she passed, and so we wanted to honor her. And there's a really wonderful film by Lisa Gay. Um, what's Lisa Gay's last name? I'm drawing a blank, sorry. Um, <laughs> and it's called Be a Rich as I Am a Black Woman. So we showed the film, and we uh, we had the director, um, you know, join us for conversation. And this past Sunday, which was the fourth Sunday for July, we, uh, we looked at um, the tradition of... Um, the Gullah stick pounding storytelling tradition. So everyone had a stick decorated with common fabric, you know, uh, at the top and in mm-hmm. the middle. And then uh, Melanie Damore, she did the workshop, and it was so beautiful because it's all about remembering our ancestors and creating community. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to tell you that uh, what you were hoping to create, um, actually, I did. I started. I did this. Had a website where I, I linked to all of the commemorations throughout the country that I could find. And so I know quite a few of the people, you know, going back 25 years, who are doing, you know, ancestor commemorations. And then now um, I'm co-founder of the International Coalition for the Commemoration of African Ancestors of the Middle Passage. Okay. And we have a website yeah. called Remember the Ancestors. And if you and there's a and there's a commemoration locator, so you can look and see where you are in the world, and find out who's doing a commemoration where you are, and the contact information. And if there is no commemoration, we have information on how you can start one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. had uh, our first virtual um, uh, libations and prayers on the second Saturday in June, the 13th. And it was really mm-hmm. wonderful, and I'll send you a link to it. It was we did it through Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. It was six hours. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like I said, well, let's let's follow up on on some of this um, Maafa ancestral work, and maybe mm-hmm. we could even do maybe one of the town halls. We could do something like the spirituality reparations or something like that. Oh, that would be super. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> well, cool. Well, again, it's been really lovely um, having this conversation, and it's so great. Like, I actually saw you, like, back when we could do those things, like, see each other, like, in, in real time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got a chance to meet you. So that's cool. <laughs> So, yeah, and let me give out my uh, information if someone may want to contact me directly. Um, oh, certainly. Um, yeah, my email is reparationsj, reparations, the letter J, at gmail.com. Um, my phone number is 678-437-7882. Again, that's 678-437-7882. Um, you can come and speak um, to your group around um, in COBRA and the reparations movement. Uh, as well as some of those stuff we've talked about as well, organizing spiritual ceremony as well to uh, advance our people. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then I'll I'll, I'll um, put your contact information um, in the description of the program, and okay. I already linked to um, the 31st um, annual Encobra virtual conference. So people just okay. you know look at the description. You can click and be connected. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and well, cool. I, I look forward to seeing you. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I feel mm-hmm. like I, I just make one little highlight. For maybe a highlight of, um, is that we um, um, uh, Judge Greg Mathis has agreed to. Oh, right. I remember 
be a spokesperson for Encolta, so he'll be doing a special uh, um, message on, on Saturday of our convention as well. And he's come on board to say he would go around the country speaking about um, reparations and Encolta on our behalf. So we're we're right. real excited to um, have him on on board. Mhm. Yeah. yeah, his story is pretty amazing, isn't it? Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. his book is really good too. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Mm-hmm. Judge Mathis. Yeah, cool, cool. Well, congratulations on you know on this wonderful um, conference that you all have have uh, put a lot of energy into you know preparing for us, and I'm looking forward to um, attending. It's going to be really awesome. It's my first time, but I'm you know. Good time to start. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much for giving us um, giving the program this opportunity. Thank you. Oh, oh, you're quite welcome. You take good care. All right. Reparations now. Peace and power. Peace and power.
jazz party. <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> Good morning. Long. How are you? <laughs> Very good. And yourself? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Gosh, it's so nice to talk to you. Um, yeah, I want to give you my condolences on the loss of your great father, Ellis Marcellus. Oh, my goodness. What a blow to the yeah, community. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> he was granted yeah. life one guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, you have a birthday coming up. Uh, well, yes and no. I had a birthday yesterday, but oh, we're celebrating okay. on Sunday, August the second, mm-hmm. uh, with a a live stream and a virtual concert that we're looking forward to. My double nickel birthday bash. Yeah, um, fifty-five double yeah. nickel. Yeah. So tell us about um, your your new nonprofit. Keep uh, New Orleans. Music alive, um, yeah. You, you you're really good with you know, sort of developing these initiatives. Um, this one here to help keep New Orleans music and culture thriving during these uncertain times. Yeah, tell us about that. Right. Well, you know, both my parents were advocates of of assisting in the community, and you know, being present at all times, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, course with my dad passing that kind of inspired me to, to think about uh how to assist with what's going on in the music community now of course there's no work lots of the venues are closed down um so we had a a donor that was actually interested in our uptown music theater and that of course mm-hmm. is the musical theater program um with some of the new orleans youth uh, but it was decided that we would direct uh the funds at this moment to assist the musicians. So that's the goal is to, uh, so far we have uh, about 120 applicants, and uh, we're hoping to, of course, to get get more, but also that people will be able to to donate and uh, just help out. Uh, You know, New Orleans musicians generally have a tough time, uh, especially those who play in the brass bands. Maybe they play on street corners, and we tend to take them for granted. You know, uh, not unlike I'm sure during Mozart and Beethoven's time, when <laughs> you know the musicians have, have generally had a tough time. Uh, we don't have the type of infrastructure that provides year-round support for artistry, and uh, we're hoping that you know this can at least provide some some type of relief uh, for a little while anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's sort of similar to. Um uh, you know what happened to a lot of musicians um, after Hurricane Katrina. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, had trouble um, returning, or you know, because they they didn't have any work, and so there were like these organizations set up, and and you know, I think didn't you all like start a a village? Yeah, Harry Connick and his management started a village they named for my dad. The Alice Marcella right. Center, and uh, and they still have that going. Um, uh, that was designed uh, initially to provide housing for musicians. There was a, a, some challenges with that along the way. Um, mm. You know that type of, of, of thing is, uh, is 
it's a, a different kind of a scenario. Uh, but yes, yes, you know, this is a little different from Hurricane Katrina because there's no actual end in sight. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. and New Orleans I, you know, was really hit hard too. Right. It cle- clearly, it, it will. I'm sure that once the pandemic, once we get, we're able to uh, have a vaccine developed, that and we're going to come out on the other side of this in way better shape. You know, we'll know much more about each other and about our families and the people that we care about. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And we'll be ready to get away from them and uh, <laughs> travel. And, <laughs> you know, we're going to do what we do. The New Orleans musicians have always provided that, that spark of hope and celebration. And that's what we do, you know, more so than anywhere else. Um, that's been the, the legacy and the history of New Orleans music. So we're looking forward to not only preserving that tradition, but, you know, lifting folks up. Makes some people happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just thinking about you know this this wonderful. Um, I'm not sure if this is your latest CD, but I know it's one of my favorites. You know, the uh, the jazz party um, CD. Like every every tune is just like having me dancing in my car. Like, and I was just like, people could cut me off. I was just like, whatever you want to do, do it, because I'm just having such a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I have such a good mood. <laughs> and then, you right. know, Tanya Boy Cannon, who's going to be a part of this this uh, double nickel um, birthday bash and, you know, and the ensemble. Like, it's just, like, stellar. Can you tell us about, about this uh, about this wonderful uh, album, you know, we played, you know, the first cut of? Right. Jazz Party it was kind of a, a an answer to the, our previous, our first CD, which was uh, – ironically entitled Make America Great Again. And oh. it was one of those things that was, was you know, meant to be in humor. But, you know, unfortunately the the uh, the way that our electoral colleges are set up, you know, the winner of the popular vote was not elected. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the election of 2016 just it's put the country in a, a kind of really peculiar place. So for me, the music always at some point has to represent not only what's going on in the country, but what does the country actually need? You know, it's a response to that. And, you know, there's there's so much, I don't know, it's just a strange vibe, a lot of negativity in the, the news media. It's, it's so much gloom and doom that, you know, Jazz Party was the beginning of we got to bring back the party. We got to let folks know everything is going to be cool. And, man, we really going to throw a party probably 2021 once this pandemic is over because folks are going to really need to come on, y'all. Let's let's get out here and do this thing. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the, the primary design, to, to have a lot of the New Orleans street songs. And, uh, you know, Jazz Party is like a gospel, blues, riff kind of tune. It's based on the, the same chord progression as When the Saints Go Marching In, which, of course, mm-hmm. is one of the... The, the great all-time happy songs. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. so that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, every track, like you said, you go to the Irish Whiskey Blues, which is an old jump blues, uh, always designed to to lift your spirits. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, and, and that's a, you know, that's a, a uh, sort of 
indicative of the the jazz tradition, the musical tradition in New Orleans, um, which is different. I mean, it's real African insofar as, you know, you think about um, uh, Oliver Mutakutsi, right? He could be singing about um, Zimbabwean uh, artists. He could be singing about, uh, you know, his brother dying from HIV and AIDS, and you would never know it, you know, because of the beat. You know, but you know, with he couched within the beat, you know, this this tragedy. Um, but what what uh, he told me is that if if it was like really sad, nobody would listen to it, and it would make them sad, and they'd be crying. It's like you know, my music is supposed to make you cry. Um, <laughs> and then right. and then, you know, you think about sort of you know you know our tradition because I'm going to claim it because I'm from New Orleans, um, which you know. Um, uh, is is similar, you know. It sort of, you know, sort of pulls from from our ancestry around around composition and around um, the way that we put things together. Um, outside of you know the the traditional um, uh, New Orleans funeral, which is its own thing. Right. Well, yeah. The and the Africans and the African Americans, by which I mean those who came from Africa initially. And we're here early on. Um, and in a sense, it's not fair to say African-American. It would be more fair to say, for example, uh, Zimbabwe-American or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, South African-American. Like, you know, whichever country they're from as opposed to the entire continent. But because of the structure of not really at some point knowing exactly where individuals are from, we just say, okay, they were. We know that they were from somewhere in Africa. But all that said, you know, you know what they brought to American culture was so great, and it's so pervasive, and that's why people love New Orleans so much. It's still, it's those African traditions. It's the idea of hospitality, man. That's straight up Africa. It's the idea of, mm. you know, the, the putting your your neighbor first. And a lot of you go to to Africa. Uh, I was in in Johannesburg. And it's really unique because you just get the sense that it's not all about the commercialism and the money. And I've had individuals from Africa that would say, if someone, if an African is hungry, and obviously this won't be every single person on the continent, but if an African is hungry and you come to their village and you're hungry, they will share their food with you. They might even give you the food because it's a selflessness and that's what we have down here in New Orleans. You know, early New Orleans music was about the audience. That's why when you hear Louis Armstrong or Sidney Bechet or Jelly Roll Martin, you say, Man, this music is so unique and those are part of the traditions that we definitely want to keep. The music, in other words, has to move forward. So we're playing music of today, but we want to keep the traditions that are the most important and the most valuable for, you know, humanity. And that's what you know, many Africans had the right idea. Mm-hmm. The idea of speaking, hello, good morning, hello, how are you? You know, there, there are a <laughs> lot of things, but, of course, the relationship of of that group of individuals to American society because of the Confederacy and what was going on, it, it's this thing where the proper credit can never be affixed. Like, you know, mm-hmm. our our 
understanding of that which is African from an American perspective, typically it's always bogged down with negativity. But it's, man, they, they have the real thing. So it's like if you see the dance, everything you see, you know, again, people come to New Orleans and say, what do you love about New Orleans? Oh, it's the food. <laughs> okay, well, it didn't come from <laughs> Ireland. <laughs> ah, the way the people dance, yeah, it's not German. <laughs> oh, people are so warm and loving. Yeah, that's not British, mate. <laughs> you know, it's, so we we embrace it. We embrace it. But then the other part that's really important is it's not important uh, to to lay claim to to those ideals. By which I'm saying we we have this thing in America now we we have to claim what's American. We have to claim, you know, I, you know I'm American, and if, if you're not this, then you're not American. But it's like, man, that's not really what it's about. Mm-hmm. It's it's not you know what I'm saying it's not about from a, a political standpoint of view defining whether you are or not an American, and that's the great thing again. So this is what we sense when we come here to New Orleans, and the other part of that is it's it's not anything that's really, you know, New Orleans don't hit you over the head with it. So you come down there, you have a great time, and you say, man, I got to come back here. It's not just because you were partying. It's not just because you were out in the street uh, that the bar is still open till 3, 4 in the morning. It's not just those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it's a love and a compassion that the people have. And uh, that's what we're going to keep in our music. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. I'm going to read a little bit of your bio. You were born and raised in New Orleans. Um, uh you're a trombonist, and you've dedicated your life to music, theater, and education. Um, at the age of 17, you began your career as a producer, and you have to date produced over 120 recordings, garnering one Grammy Award and several nominations. Uh, you have played trombone in bands led by legendary musicians Ray Charles, Art Blakey, Max Roach, uh, Elvin Jones, and Slide Hampton, as well as leading your own groups. In 2008, you formed the Uptown Jazz Orchestra, um, I guess whom we are listening to on this CD, right, that I'm playing, I played the song from? Right, it's not the same band as 2008, but uh, yes, that's the current <laughs> Uptown Jazz Orchestra. <laughs> okay. I got the right, the right people now. <laughs> okay, super. And the Uptown Jazz Orchestra is a highly entertaining ensemble that focuses on maintaining important jazz traditions such as riff playing, New Orleans uh, polyphony, 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 and polyphony, polyphony is just and the, the, the mm-hmm. idea of playing different parts at the same time. That's polyphonic, okay. me going against, you know, mm-hmm. with but yeah. against, with but against. So like if you okay. say but up up, you're saying but up up, but up, and I'm saying we do later, yet up up, de do later, and we just keep it going like that. Okay. Yeah, I always thought that was like call and response on the instrument. Okay. Well, it's that what I just did was call and response more because it's hard for me to sing both things at one time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you would they, they would be doing but it together. I tell you, you what, were, if you had someone, if okay. you just do that, once, can you sing? Just do that. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Keep doing that. Do that for me. Ba-la-ba, 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 ba-
music as a professional, that sound is it's it's there. It's you don't have to necessarily only play that for it to come across in your music. So when you hear, you know, whoever it is from New Orleans, if it's well, you know, one of my older brothers or Terrence Blanchard or Donald Harrison, you hear mm-hmm. that sound in their music. Nice. Why don't you tell us, um, you know, who's in your band now and who's going to be performing at your party and how do people come to the party? Okay, just log into Facebook, facebook.com and Delphia Marcellus, and there will be a, a virtual link. And we're going to have, uh, let's see, from the top, to, well, from the bottom to the top, we're going to have a New Orleanian Joe Dyson Jr. on the drums, and he's featured on most of Jazz Party CD. David Paulfus on stand-up bass. He's from St. Louis, Missouri. Then we're going to have Ryan Hanseler on piano, and Ryan is uh, from North Kakalaki. Uh, on the <laughs> saxophones, we have Kyrie Allen Lee and Amari Ansari on alto saxophones. They're from Alabama. Uh, and then the Reverend Roderick Paulin on tenor saxophone. He's from New Orleans. Uh, Gregory Speedo Ajid is going to play clarinet. He's from Hawaii. Then we have Travari Huffboon on the baritone saxophone, and also the dirty old man, Roger Lewis, the pride of New Orleans. He's 78 years old. He's still kicking, and uh, he's on the baritone saxophone. Scott Johnson's from Jackson, Mississippi, on tenor saxophone, trombones. We've got uh, Miracle Mo, Maurice Trosclair, and Terrence Hollywood Taplin, T.J. Norris, myself, trumpets. We've got Scott Frock. Andrew Bayham from New Orleans, and uh, John Gray, Baton Rouge native, and Dr. Bryce Miller. And he is the composer and singer of the song I'm So New Orleans. That's one of our hits. And Tanya uh, Boyd Cannon, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a really nice one. Yeah, I like that one. Mm. In addition to that, we're going to have a special clip of my Uptown Music Theater kids and they're all from New Orleans, and they're singing mm-hmm. a, a tribute to Charlie Parker, one of the Charlie Parker songs called uh, Yardbird Suite. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's going to be a, a full time. You know, it's kind of difficult set up to have everyone with the social distancing in mm-hmm. the, the proper place, but we have a, a large enough studio room that we can do that. And the kids are just going to be on video. They're not going to be at the actual event. Mm-hmm. Um but we want to showcase what they're doing. And uh, that's it. going to be a great time. We're going to have, uh, I guess, champagne. We want people to, to go ahead on and prepare their favorite <laughs> drink. And we're going to break open the bubbly at some point, you know, have the cake and confetti, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to have a real a real party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I, I was wondering how you were going to do this virtually, so you're actually going to be in a space, um, you know, distance. Right. Mm-hmm. And we did one. We did two. One was for the Blue Note Live and also mm-hmm. the Niagara Jazz Festival, uh, which we've done. Uh, we did earlier on. Those are available and on the Facebook page also. Yeah, I want to check a little bit of that out. But, uh, yeah, we we keep it going, man. We and just the excitement, and that's the other thing about music. It's like it's it's so healing, not only for the the audience, but for the musicians. 
You know, it's mm-hmm. like you could just you can just feel like guys are just so excited to have that opportunity to play together and to create and there's an energy and a synergy that you, you get when uh when that's going on. It's really special. Right, right. Yeah, um let's see, I was looking for the one you mentioned, um that I uploaded and now I can't remember it. Um <clears throat> oh yeah, the raid. Well, um, Raid on the Mingus House Party. You can play that, and just after the, once the solo starts, probably off. fade it down. It's it's relatively, okay. it's a little long, um, maybe six and a half, right. seven minutes. Yeah, it is, six, six fifty-two. Okay, so, um, yeah. please. So this is Raid on the Mingus House Party, and what you hear is it starts off with just two voices. It it just, mm-hmm. start, well, no, it just starts off with the bass part. That's the first line. And then when mm-hmm. we come in with the melody and the bass part is playing, that's the, the polyphonic line. So you have two two lines going. And then mm-hmm. when the second chorus comes along, you're going to hear the bass part, the melody line, and then a couple of other instruments are improvising, plus the trumpets have a riff that they play together. And then when the third chorus comes in, you have the trumpets playing their riff, the saxophones have a riff, you have the melody, you have the bass part, mm-hmm. You have the piano, then you have uh, uh, three individuals who are improvising, and there's something else that I can't remember. You hear how it layers, and you hear how it, mm-hmm. it builds in intensity. So that's my description of what's about to happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so it's you a lot did, like um, opening an internet browser, you know. It just starts, <laughs> just starts popping up. You're like, what? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so how much of it should I play? You know. <laughs> oh, I will. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so here we go then. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh, 
Yeah, that was the layering part, like you were saying. You could really hear it, like one on top of the other, and then it was like all this big thing, this big sound. Yeah, but you could still hear the individuals in it, too. That was so cool. Yeah, that's that's extremely difficult to do. That's you won't hear another band doing that. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's again, that's just a product of the New Orleans. Now, Mingus, of course, Charles Mingus was known for creating a certain type of tension in his music. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot, a lot of the music we we all often don't think of music music as representing aspects of the, of society, but you know, that's why, for example, Glenn Miller's music or Frank Sinatra's music had a certain sound because mm-hmm. that was their outlook on what was happening around them, whereas Charles Mingus had a different outlook in Charlie Parker. So, you know, artists have a different outlook on what's happening. And you could take that to the European spec, you know, Beethoven and Mozart, the way their music sounds is different from, say, Wagner or Schoenberg um, and the key for us is to to know how to create the tension, but then where to have the release. Like, do we want to have an entire album of music that's introspective? At this point, we don't, because it requires a lot from the listener. You know, introspect. It's almost it's to me as if you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you some type of uh, lengthy explanation about what is ailing you. Which mm-hmm. actually happened to me. I went to the foot doctor, and he went through a whole thing about plantar fasciitis and this such and such and blah, blah, blah. And when he finished, mm-hmm. I said, which means? And he said, your shoes are too small. <laughs> <laughs> really? Get your shoes a size up, and you won't have these problems. I'm like, ah, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks, doc. And I think a lot of times mm-hmm. as musicians, we go the first route. We want people to... You know, we've studied the music, and we know these all these things, and we want, and you know, audiences are like, yeah, okay, what's what's the punchline? <laughs> oh, okay, I need new shoes. Perfect, thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's you know, again, what what the the New Orleans way is simple explanation of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, sometimes mm-hmm. you need a more complex explanation, and that's kind of what Mingus, what that song represents. It's like you have to really say, oh man, what is Something is happening. What is going on? And then, of course, you know, clarinet solo. We take it down. You get a chance to regroup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I want you to talk a little bit about. Um, I'm going to finish up your bio, but uh, I want to want you to talk about when we come back. Um, through, you know, after I finish reading it all, um, I want to talk about your the Uptown Music Theater. Um, you know, this nonprofit. Um, organization that empowers youth through musical theater training and um, uh, says here that you've written 16 musicals to date based on historical <clears throat> and or uh, uniting the community um, at this theme and your American Legacy series includes informational works on Harriet Tubman, Althea Gibson, Duke Ellington, the Harlem Renaissance and those crazy 60s in addition, you compose over 100 songs that help introduce kids to jazz through musical theater, and you reach more over 5,000 students nationally with your Swinging with the Cool School, Soft Introduction to Jazz Workshops, 
And in 2014, your kids' town after-school program was implemented in three New Orleans elementary schools. And then um, perhaps you could even talk about what's happening in the schools because um, a lot of a lot of uh, different uh, school districts are looking at um, do they continue, um, you know, distance ed or are they trying to bring the children back into the classroom and what's the feeling around that. And you have dual degrees in music performance and production from Berkeley College of Music, a master's in jazz performance from the University of Louisville, and you were conferred a doctorate from the New England College, congratulations, in 2011. I don't think I remembered this. Uh, in 2011, you were named NEA Jazz Master, <laughs> the highest honor given to a jazz musician in America. In New Orleans, uh, you have won the Best of the Beat Awards for Best Trombonist in 2009, Best Contemporary Jazz Artist 2017, and Best Contemporary Jazz Recording, Make America Great Again, which you mentioned already to us. And I have to listen to that one. I don't know that one. In 2017. And you are a recipient of the 3M Visionary Award and the 2020 Berkeley Alumni Achievement Award. So congratulations um, on all of that. <laughs> so, yeah. So tell us about your, your your kid program. Oh, just something to do. Uh, I mean, yeah, you write books too. <laughs> oh, I have yeah, no cell phone cool. day. Yeah, well, yes. I've started a lot of initiatives, ironically, just on a whim, and mm. the Uptown Jazz Orchestra was formed only because in 2007 I played the Nutcracker Ellington and Strayhorn's Nutcracker Suite. Uh, mm-hmm. with a, a different big band. And these were mostly reading musicians, but it didn't capture the spirit of the music to me. And, like, you know, Duke Ellington wrote, don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Mm-hmm. So 2008, the, the intent was just, man, I'm going to put together a band that can play this music, and we're going to bring the funk, and we're going to swing. Mm-hmm. And we rehearsed for about three months, and then after that, Guys were like, man, let's just get a gig somewhere. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense <laughs> to stop. So, so okay, we just and we kept it going, and it's grown into what we do now today. Similarly, in 1997, I uh, one of my my first musical, Luther, was staged in New Orleans, and after that, the kids would call me every summer or before the summer, Mr. Delphia, when are you gonna start your own program? <laughs> I'm like, man, I, at that point, had no interest in musical theater, you know, to that degree. But they kept calling. <laughs> so to 2000, finally I said, okay, look, we're going to start it this summer. All right, if that's what it takes for y'all to stop calling me. And I just called my director and choreographer, and we started it. And here we are 20 years later, still going. <laughs> And the kids wow. are really, really, you know, it's it's an old school type of training that they receive, but they mm-hmm. just, they really excel, and we accept whatever kids are interested. And they've been going to a, a big musical theater competition for the past decade, and they've, they've hoisted big trophies for, I think, eight, well, it's about seven out of the nine years. And then mm-hmm. one of the, the one time that they didn't hoist a big trophy, they were on stage with Cynthia Arrivo, who, of course, played in Harriet Tubman. Oh, yeah. And is 
yeah, they had that opportunity. So they said, well, they weren't going to have them on the big stage twice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, the, but my vibe is that about any kind of competition is always, you know, somebody's got to win, so it might as well be us. That's what I mm-hmm. tell the kids. And, you know, they've grown a lot, and uh, we've sent uh, two students on, to Broadway. One played Nala for a year on Broadway mm-hmm. uh, in The Lion King. Uh-huh. So, so that, you know, that was exciting. And then after she finished, she came back to our program and didn't have a leading role. So it's, <laughs> it's tough love, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> it's tough love. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So what about now? What are you all doing? Because um, this, this is the summer. Um, did you all have anything in a virtual way um this summer for the young people? No, we we didn't. We haven't pulled anything together. And, uh, you know, we're just kind of waiting it out. I stay in contact with the kids. We do have Zoom meetings. Mm-hmm. And we just we talk about different things. And ironically, before the mm-hmm. whole George Floyd uh, event, two months before that, uh, I had begun to talk to them more about Paul Lawrence Dunbar and mm-hmm. James Baldwin and, uh, du Bois, mm-hmm. more things uh, about crucial American history. And at one point mm-hmm. they were like, what is this becoming a black history class? And I was <laughs> telling them that, you know, they have to, because it's, the group is, is it's all African American, you know, mm-hmm. group of black kids. But I'm telling them that they have to address their history from a position of strength. And this is what we have problems with sometimes just the fact that someone was a slave or like oh, a slave that just sounds so inferior but you have mm-hmm. to understand that these were superior individuals these were individuals who came through the worst possible scenario mm-hmm. and somehow they were able to to maintain their sense of dignity and pride and love and compassion now that's the most difficult to me <laughs> Mm-hmm. They were actually able to love and forgive their oppressors. So my mm-hmm. position with the kids, especially now, has always been many people have paid a lot of dues for a long time to give us this opportunity. So, yeah, it's a little tough, but, you know, 200 years ago, it might not have been a pandemic, but it may have been working in the field from sun up to sundown. And then you might have been in, you know, a one room cabin with six, seven, eight people and that was just what it was gonna be. So if people could find the strength to find some enjoyment and some kind of joy in that situation, then surely we're doing all right. Mhm. Right. So that's the vibe I have with, on with the kids. And, you know, they get it. They're, you know, they're the leaders of the future. I mean, all of the kids are. And that's what I think is the great thing about what we saw with the protests is that it's younger people trying to be involved and trying to make a stance and say, man, it's just enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, so you know. your daughter, is she? Um, she's school age still, right? She's young. Yeah, she's 19. She's uh she was oh, so going she's to Northeastern. 
Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. She's in college. She was going to Northeastern University, and we're trying to see what they're going to do, if it's going to be online classes mm-hmm. or not. Uh, I think it almost has to be. Folks are trying to open up the uh, the country before we're ready. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's tough. It's, it's tough, but we got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the right. tough part about being a parent, too, is that you have no control. Like, all you can do... And what I, we've tried to do with our Uptown Music Theater kids is prepare them. You just be prepared for whatever comes up because who knows what it'll be. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. what what we find with, with the leadership in our government currently is that they were clearly not prepared for anything like this. They just and while it is it would be difficult for anyone to prepare you know, that's the, the Boy Scout motto was be prepared. Mm-hmm. You, you never know. It's like, so, you know, we just have to wait this ride out, you know, wait to ride out and see where we end up. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, so, yeah, my daughter, that's the thing, and I'm, I try to stress with her, is just, just be prepared because that's just it. I'm not going to be there to save you. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. the, the cycle of life. And that was mm-hmm. kind of my dad's position was what's the next move? Mm-hmm. And, you know, think about my dad. I mean, he, he just always gave great advice. There was a time when I was on the road with a band, and uh, it just wasn't happening. It was one of the older musicians, and and I thought that it should be, it should sound different than it did. And so I called my dad. I was in Europe. And I said, man, it's just not happening, man. It's, it's, I'm unhappy on this gig, so I'm about to come home. And my dad, he listened, and he said, he said, well, the answers that you're looking for are not going to be found at home. He said, that's the first thing. He said, the second thing is you never leave a gig because you never know when the next one is going to come back up. He said, so your best bet is to figure out what the answers are to make that gig work. And that's probably some of the greatest advice I've ever received. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's, it's not unlike people who they don't get along with their boss. If you don't like this, not right. that I wasn't getting along with the boss, it's just the music was kind of, you know, but it's like, yeah, that's unless you have another plan, it's like you got to work it out. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, African folks that came to America, they worked it out. <laughs> It was tough, but they worked it out, and that's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Nice. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I know that was more than you asked, but... <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I, I like I like the way, you know, you, you do these deep dives. It's great. That's why I like talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Body blow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking about um yeah, it's for um for New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, um they had the um uh a band from 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 New Orleans that um performed and they were really awesome and um and they uh and then and the other group was the um uh Preservation Hall Jazz Band. They played at the the uh Fillmore in San Francisco. 
And so it was really great, um, you know, having those true traditions, you know, bringing in the new year. And um, and then I was thinking about um, about the uh, slave rebellion reenactment during the year of 400 year return, um, sort of you know, sort of documenting, you know, the first Africans to come into, you know, the the colony in uh, in Virginia, um, you know, 400 years last year, and then the slave rebellion reenactment of the largest rebellion in this country's history, but nobody knew about it. And so, and so I was one of those, um, uh, you know, reenactors and that walked uh, November 8th through 9th into, um, you know, uh, Congo Square. And, and that, you know, the what happened on stage, you know, with people, you know, calling the names and Dred Scott and, and what you all did, sort of interpreting what he was thinking. It was so beautiful, and I really wanted to ask you about that. It was just so wonderful. So I just wanted to, you know, in retrospect, because it's been almost a year, you know, this December, this November. I was wondering if you could mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that. Because, you know, I was like, I was so not surprised, you know, when I read that you were a part of it because this is what you do, you know. I mean, your whole embodiment is, you know, sort of a tribute to our ancestors. You never forget that. Um, and so, anyway, it was just really lovely. Right. Yeah, I think as that turned out, the they, they at the last minute decided that they needed a band. So they were like, hey, what are you doing next week? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, which is like, okay, man. Uh, either that or a band canceled. But it gave me an opportunity to write in that week. I wrote four or five songs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the most potent, I believe, being The Valley of Prayers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the challenge that we have with with black history is that no one is really interested in it. Black folk don't like it because we feel that we were not in a good position and we're always put in a position uh, of inferiority. White folk don't like black history because it is a reminder of the ills of their ancestors and it's just not anything that at this point uh, lifts them up a certain way. So my experience has been that other than on a cursory level, no one really, you know, likes to deal with it to a large extent. The great thing about the reenactment of the, the 1811 revolt was the sheer number of people who were involved. And mm-hmm. while it did not represent what actually happened, which was unfortunate. You know, everybody died, but they took a yeah. stand. And we have, mm-hmm. you know, great cinematic uh, pieces throughout history. You know, Spartacus coming to mind, where individuals took a stand and they paid the ultimate price. Well, for us, for the, the African descendants, taking that stand is never deemed heroic because it was not financially feasible for the country. That's really what this all boils down to, the financial feasibility of things. Um, but it was great to see the, the hundreds of folks who were involved who, 
who made the walk. And, you know, we were saying, saying the names of the people who sacrificed or were lost, you know, to struggle. And to the struggle that's going on, it's an American struggle. It's been going on for many years. Um, so I, I appreciated being a part of that and also being, giving, being given an opportunity to write new music and something that I thought had the spirit, uh, which is the important thing for me, is not to capture, well, what kind of music were they playing in 1811, but what was the spirit as it is represented today of the, the people that were involved. So, yeah, it was a, it was a powerful uh, event. Mm, yeah, and um, and and tell our audience about about Tanya Boyd uh, Cannon, because um, wow, and 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 the sister who I don't remember her name, um, who did the poem, um, gosh, um, do you know what I'm right. talking about? Right, yeah, that's I yeah. know exactly who you're talking. But again, my that's it. The half Simers is kicking in, so. Uh, <laughs> Hold on, let yeah. me see if I can. But yeah, Tanya Boyd Cannon is just one of one of our great supreme talents, and uh, she came up, uh, you know, in the church. So she had the church experience, you know, similar to when we hear Aretha Franklin and Whitney Houston. They had that church experience, and they bring that to the the, the gospel sound, to the blues and to R&B. She really serves well in my Uptown Jazz Orchestra because she's not a traditional jazz singer a la Ella Fitzgerald or Sarah Vaughan. And what we do, Uptown Jazz, is more funk-based. If that's really the sound of New Orleans, it's funk. The sound of New Orleans, that's what people love, the funky sound. Like somebody says, what is a quintessential New Orleans sound? It's not going to be, ah, yeah, the Marcellus family. No, it's going to be the Neville Brothers, Fats Domino, Dr. John. It's going to be funk. Alan Toussaint. So, mm-hmm. you know, TBC, she's perfect in that kind of tradition. And that's where we are now is we're playing things that are more funky-based than they are what you would typically imagine straight-ahead jazz. Uh, well, when we go into the swing, it's swinging. And that's my thing is when you go to the swing, it's got to be serious. Uh, but Tanya, she works really well, and she has great sensibility, you know, and great energy, and just she knows what to do. And she's cool, so, you know, that works out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Uh, did you remember the name of the poet? Did, did it come to you? No, no. I yeah, tried to yeah, see if I, I had it written down. Is it sunny? Yeah, sunny? I was looking to see if I had it. Hmm? Yes, sunny, yes, yes. It's sunny, right? It is sunny. Sunny. Yes, it is sunny. I think just yeah, because she's one of those Ashe famous poets. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's she's the real deal. She's yeah, she's, she's the real deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really really beautiful. So where where can we uh, find these? Songs that you composed. Is Where it are they? Sonny Patterson. Was that it? Yeah, that's that's her. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sonny Patterson. Patterson. Yeah, that mm-hmm. sure that's is. Her. Mm-hmm. Yes. It was great seeing her. It's like, oh yeah, I know her. 
Yeah, Sonny Patterson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, those kinds of things are great. You know, it's just it's it's a celebration. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's you know, it's again, it's very difficult to celebrate our ancestry on a consistent basis. But it's something that we have to, and our kids have to look. You have to look from a point of strength. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big, it's a major struggle. But man, folks, they came out of it with this thing, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always tell the kids, you come from a line of greatness, and you got to summon that energy. You got to summon that all of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to always know who you are, and it's important. And look, Mom, Tom, you see the kids went into to a school, and this one, I realized that the important thing for me is not for me to go into these schools; it's to send these kids into the schools because yeah. they did a performance, and man, these kids. It's that whole peer association and kind of peer mm-hmm. pressure that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing, the competition involved. And, mm-hmm. and these kids were just, and that was, for me was, is really a tragedy now because it was just last semester. And I'm seeing this, and I'm like, man, that's where my energies were going to be spent getting, you know, the kids that we've trained into the schools so that, you know, to inspire their, their peers. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where it is. That's where it is. Right. Yeah. So where where can a person um, have you recorded these um, uh, four to five songs that you composed um, specifically on the Valley of Prayers, but any of the others? Right. I have not yet. I would imagine, depending on how the new CD turns out after the pandemic, uh, at least a couple of those songs will be on that that particular CD. Oh, nice. uh, so, no, they're not available yet. But uh, okay. if you look at the live stream, either of the, the live streams, maybe we'll do it on Sunday. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do Valley of Prayers. Oh, super. Cool. We, we, awesome. We weren't going to, but we'll, yeah, we'll break that Valley of Prayers up as a special request. But we did perform yeah. on the live stream. Uh, that's available on Facebook now. Uh, Blue Note live stream, you know, up in the Valley of Prayers. Yeah, Yeah, that's it. Okay, cool, cool, super. Well, great. Oh, it's so wonderful catching up with you, Um, and I'm looking forward to Sunday. Um, So it's going to be Double Nickel Birthday Bash, uh, virtual performance, uh, August 2nd, 5 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, 3 p.m. Pacific. (laughs) Yeah, 3 p.m. Pacific, thank you. I need to bite that in there. <laughs> Somebody yeah. ever thinks about us. It's like, and I have to like, I'm putting, I'm putting, you know, the times in one of those converters because sometimes I get confused on which way to go. I know it's two hours. Right, right. <laughs> but from who's perspective, right? Pacific time. <laughs> right. Yeah, it might be a little early, but, you know, it's just like football games. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be nice. Yeah, I don't want to miss that. Wow. Well, I hope you have a wonderful, you know, birth year, you know, your solar return, and, um, yeah, that everything, you know, creative and wonderful that you envision and what you don't envision, you know, that it works out well for you. Well, I certainly appreciate that, and always a pleasure to speak to you. And until the next time. Yeah. So I was thinking about, um, (laughs) yeah, so I was wondering, like, what song should I play you know, as you sign off, I've uh, got Soul New Orleans. I think you mentioned, and then uh, and then I 
I was looking at um, Let Your Mind Be Free. Yeah, no, I would do Irish whiskey first, and then I'm so New Orleans. That's going to put you okay. right where we need to be. <laughs> okay, all righty. Well, I don't have Irish whiskey uploaded, so I'm going to have to just do so New Orleans. What the? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I might have to do it in opposite order. I could play it after so New Orleans. <laughs> okay, yeah, that Irish whiskey is the one, though, man. That's, you know, that's, yeah, okay. that's hard hitting there. Okay, well, I'll play yeah, it after yeah, so do New Orleans. Okay. Yeah, I'd say that might be a good one. <laughs> but okay. if not, then, right, you know, cool. I'm still New Orleans is killing, too. No, no, I can do both. I'll just have to do them in opposite order, unfortunately. But I can do both. All right. All right, it's cool. <laughs> All right, y'all. All right. Have a See good you day. Sunday. You, too. Right, Peace and blessings.
of the skate ring in the night wall, the one with those hardwood floors, I'm so New Orleans, from Jazz Fest to Second Line Parade, yeah, strike up the bang, cause we'll find a reason to party every day, I'm so New Orleans, 12 inches, extra butter, yeah, I'm talking about a shrimp pool boy, girl, get your mind out the gutter, I'm so New Orleans, red beans on Monday, and daiquiris to go, this here be the African groove. Yeah, up your feet on the floor. I'm so New Orleans, we celebrate life out here in East Street. You can do what you want, roll with it, baby, shake that thing for me. I'm so New Orleans, I like to make it do just what it do. And I'm swinging with the Uptown Jazz Orchestra, baby, bringing that party to 